this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're actually going to start in Matthew chapter 4, starting verse 23, just to get kind of the context of where what's going on in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, I was not supposed to preach this morning. I was supposed to, we're supposed to be in Revelation. Uh, Paul Michael and his family not feeling well, and um, so just be in prayer over them as they're uh, recovering. And so uh, this morning, um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And really, the, the, what started the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, as I was preparing, and I'm just going to let everyone know, this was a message I gave to our students last year. Uh, we walked through the Sermon on the Mount, and I only anticipated walking through like five weeks on it. I ended up doing 14 because I loved it that much. And so uh, this is the first lesson. So, uh, but I started thinking, I was like, well, maybe they're going to remember it, but um, they won't. Um, so uh, because I started thinking is... Um, Anyone remember their graduation speech? Anybody? Like, I don't, like, I graduated in 2014 from high school. Couldn't tell you one thing um, that uh, my, the person who spoke at our graduation said. Um, I remember who was there. You know, I was thinking about, you know, like Bethany Roper, she did her speech, and Libby, they did their speeches last year for Sabine. I think the year before it was uh, Halen, I think. I'm trying to remember it all my years. And then the year before that was Scotty. And I think the year before that was T. And so like we remember people who spoke things. But generally we don't always remember the message in which they said. And so I started thinking about that. And that's not true for every speech, right? I started thinking, uh, so we're going to do a little trivia here this morning. Is, uh, so so with, just, with some people, just a few words, and we instantly know who gave that speech. And so uh, let's do, let's see, let's maybe play with those people around you. If I say this phrase... Four score and seven years ago. Who is that? Abraham, right? All right. So the Gettysburg Address, he paints this picture of how in the groundwork that our country was founded on and that as a country we need to push forward and value and honor all people regardless of their color, right? And so uh, what about this one? Maybe fill in the blank here. My firm belief is that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, right? FDR gave that in 1933. Here's another one. Ask not what your country can do for you. JFK, right? Okay, this is totally random, but there's some powerful people. They can just use their initials. JFK, FDR. Like, it doesn't work with my name. KCPG, it don't work, okay? There's no power behind that. All right, here's another one. I have a dream that one day a nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that we are all men are created equal, right? I have a dream, Martin Luther King. Okay, so it's fascinating that I could say four words and maybe with the Abraham Lincoln, two words, four score. You're already there. But you immediately know what I'm talking about when we said those words. You know immediately the picture that is being painted. When Martin Luther King said, I have a dream, you instantly see the picture in your mind. You know a piece of the dream that he's talking about. And we see not all words are forgotten. Some words catch fire and some words continue to have echoing reverb throughout the whole world we live in long past the time they were spoken. And we get to these words in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus speaks. The sermon that he gives on this mountainside is Matthew chapter 5 verses 7. And I, my hope and prayer is that these words do not come back and you don't remember them. Because those words sparked a movement 
in the lives of believers 2,000 years ago, and I hope it's still stirring in your heart today. And what I want us to do is, I think to understand Matthew chapter 5 in this sermon by Jesus, I think we need to kind of get some of the backstory because Matthew chapter 5 follows Matthew chapter 4. And so Jesus has headed out into the wilderness. And if you're some sort of a student of the scriptures, you kind of go, wait a minute, Jesus is up on a mountainside to teach people, but there's something that I'm familiar with. And so if you flip back to Matthew chapter 2 for a second, you see that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And then he does what? He flees to Egypt, which is really interesting. He goes to Egypt, and he's there for a time, and then comes back to Nazareth, his hometown. And that's Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 3, he's baptized Egypt, then baptism. And you have Jesus coming out of the water, Matthew 4. Then he heads into the wilderness to be tempted, right? And so if you're a Jewish reader, you're like, wait a minute, I've heard this story. Into the Egypt, now to Egypt, to go through water, to go into the wilderness. Wait a second, who is that? That's Moses. Jesus is like the picture of Israel's journey, rescued from slavery out of Egypt, through the water, the Red Sea. Jesus, through the waters of baptism, into the wilderness where they're tempted, and then up onto the mountain. Except, here in Matthew chapter 5, only Jesus doesn't go up to receive revelation from God. He goes up to the mountain to give it. He's not receiving revelation like Moses did on the mountain Sinai. He says, I've come here to give you a new ethic, a new way to live, and a new kingdom. The story of Israel is, is reaching its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. It's coming to a peak and pinnacle in the person and work of Jesus. And so quite literally sitting on the mountain, he is speaking as the new Mosaic Messiah, delivering a new Messianic Torah, a new way to live, a new way to become the people of God. But if you know anything about context at this time in Israel's history, is there's so much division, so much discord, with four primary groups that are in the back of the, in this crowd that we're going to see. You have the Pharisees who were like the old school religious legalists. They were kind of textual purists. They enjoyed looking back like what, what, this is what happened. The Sadducees, you see they have these... Sadducees work, and they're a group more like a political savvy, religious elite. Their goal, these folks were the kind of religious liberals of the day. They rejected most of the supernatural things in our Bible. So if Jesus healed somebody, no sir. Okay, they want to focus on the future and how we can position ourselves in places of power. That was their goal, the Sadducees. The Essenes, which these are not well popular, you don't hear about these as much. But the Essenes, they were there physically present, but their aesthetic was to remove themselves from the culture. Physically. So a lot of times we saw these as scenes, they were out in the country, out in the desert, away from people because they want to not associate with the culture at all. And then you have these zealots who were kind of like religious fanatics. They were as close as you can get to a terrorist in their day. People who were focused on opposition and violence. That's the four main groups that when Jesus is talking here. And while fully aware of their presence... Fully aware of those four groups, it was in this environment that Jesus taught his disciples proclaiming the gospel and the rule and reign of God on the earth. And in your growth guide, there's a whole bunch of points. It ain't going to be super long, I promise. But you're going to see the very first, there's a italicized. This is not a self-help guide on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to expose the hearts of people and continually point them back to their need for a Savior. That's the goal of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And so here's what I want us to do. I want to start in chapter 4. Let's look at verse 23. Let's start reading there. Because this is all the backdrop of what's going on. So verse 24, now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching something very significant. The good news of what? The kingdom. What is this kingdom and what does it mean for it to be here? The kingdom is the rule and reign of God on this earth. Very common biblical concept. The Lord's Prayer, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And so in Matthew, what he's doing, you've, it's, it's officially offered to the Jews in Matthew 1 through 12. And in chapter 13, something shifts. It's offered to the Gentiles. The Jews rejected it, and it's then offered to us as Gentiles, but the king will return one day and establish his throne forever and ever, and that day is coming. And so when we get to Matthew, let's keep reading here in Matthew chapter 4, 23. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease, sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. They brought him to all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the the epilep, that word, and the paralytics. And he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Diocopolis, oh man, I'm struggling, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And so this is significant. I think in your growth guide it's going to say this. It is not a self-help guide to a blessed life. As we're about to get into these Beatitudes... It's not a self-help guide to a blessed life. Don't misread this. It's not if you do these things, you will be blessed. It's not a handbook on how we're to live per se. It's said so that when you read it, there's a sense of, gosh, well, who can do that? That's above my spiritual pay grade. I can't pull that off. I can't accomplish. That seems like it's too much. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount and that's where you land, you got it. Because the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to expose what's going on in your heart and to show you that no matter what you're going through, you're always going to need the Savior. So you see all these people. And so when we read the Sermon on the Mount, he's specifically talking to his disciples. This is is important to know. Because look at verse 1 of chapter chapter 5. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain... So all these mountains and all these people he's been healing and doing crazy works. And after he sat down with his disciples, they came to him. Then he began to teach them. So he's talking to his disciples, but he's got these crowds around him. It could be, we don't know how many. It could have been hundreds. It could have been thousands. It could have been tens of thousands. It doesn't really matter. He's talking to his disciples and teaching them. But he's got this audience around him, and that's important to note. Because he's sharing with his disciples, and but he knows what ears are listening. The message Jesus was sharing on the kingdom was difficult for those three to four groups I mentioned earlier. It was difficult for them because they couldn't reconcile because the religious elite wanted a political ruler. They wanted a leader and military deliverer. And Jesus is going to talk about blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry, the gentle, the merciful. And they're like, nah, I'm good. I don't want that. That sounds like the worst thing to sign up for in Jesus, but Jesus is going after something deeper here than just a political leader. This isn't about the Messiah coming to set them free from pagan Roman oppression. He's after their hearts. So let's talk about, let's start in in verse 3. 
The first word there you see is blessed. You could also translate it as happy. A ble- beatitude is a blessed are statement. The word blessing is very interesting. It's not used in your Bible very often, but it has the idea of a joy that comes from participation in the divine kingdom. That's the idea of blessed. And so there's two words that Jesus really could have used here in this passage, uh, two words that he could have chosen for the word blessed. And it's important to know, which happens to be the theme of this whole sermon. The first one is eulelgio. Eulelgio. I don't know how, the Greek is really hard for me. In the Greek, it means an active blessing from God. So it's us praying, God, would you bless this person? God responded, absolutely, I will bless them. So like when you see the disciples going around and they're praying, and and this guy gets healed, that's the act of blessing that he's talking about. That's not the word he chose here. He chooses the word marxios. Marxios. Marxios is a little bit more nuanced. There's a little bit, it's a little bit more complex. It's not a wish or an ask to evoke some sort of blessing from God. Rather, marxios is a recognized reality. Meaning, you're just blessed. As people of the kingdom... You're simply blessed because that's who you are. You are in right standing with God, so you are blessed in turn because of that. And it's not simply as blessed as in life is good. It's a blessing that is I'm good with God. That's the idea of Marcus that he uses here. It doesn't communicate the way of salvation that's important to note here. It's not as if, it's because it's easy to read the Beatitudes and think, well, if I do this, 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 and this, I will be right with God and be blessed. No, that's work salvation. That's not how it works. What he's basically suggesting is that a truly blessed life is not found in this world, but found in his kingdom. And every one of these beatitudes are going to focus on what's going on on the inside. And so that way, if you look at your growth guide and you're like, there's 10 points in here, it's because there's eight beatitudes. I've already given you two. All right, so we're going to roll through these. Because it's going to show us in our heart we have an inability to live this kingdom out if we don't have Jesus. And so the kingdom of heaven is marked by, let's start in verse 3. Blessed are the pure in spirit, poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So the kingdom of heaven, first we see that it is not marked by spiritual arrogance, but spiritual poverty. It's not marked by spiritual arrogance, but by poverty. And so be to poor in spirit is to shrink back, is to cower, is to hide your face in shame as you beg for help. That's the idea that he's carrying here. Blessed is the person who understands in their spirit the best we have to, the, the best we have to offer God is poverty and bankruptcy and nothing. Be like, God, I cannot offer you anything, but yet you have blessed me. Thank you, God. Because the kingdom of God is marked by complete spiritual need. Jesus knew exactly who is listening and takes a shot at those three to four groups right off the bat because they're, they pranced around in arrogance in public. You see that the story Jesus tells, he talks about how there's a, there's a Pharisee who's praying. He's, he's saying, oh God, Lord, thank you. He has his hands out and he's boasting. He's super loud and you have this tax collector in the corner who's cowering down in shame and in hurt. And saying, God, I need you. And Jesus says, who goes away being blessed by God? The tax collector did and the righteous man. Because what's happening, you need to see here, is the kingdom of heaven is not marked by spiritual arrogance. But it goes for spiritual poverty. The kingdom of heaven has no room for pride, no room for it. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Second, second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Literally in the Greek, happy is the sad. Happy is the sad, which doesn't make sense. Not sad as in, oh, bummer, you know. But here's what you get to see. Comfort is given by God to those who recognize their spiritual poverty and mourn, this is important, and mourn over their sin. That's who he's talking about here. When we mourn over our spiritual brokenness, we begin to understand that the blessed life comes in our spiritual bankruptcy and poverty. And it's not talking necessarily about a brokenness, a physical brokenness that happened. It's mourning over our spiritual need. Psalm 51.3 says, For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me against you. You alone, God, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So the kingdom of heaven is marked by this, this idea that God redeems and he redeems us. And Psalm 30.11 says, I turned my lament into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness so that I can sing to you and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. So when Jesus is talking about mourning here, it's not just over the things that have happened to us. When life is hard, when things are difficult. Now God is an ever-present father and he he does care for his children, but that's not what's exactly happening here. Jesus said, blessed are those who let themselves go and grieve honestly because they're blessed because they find the arms of God and the grace he offers and meets them in their need. They're not hiding the fact that they need help because healing does not come through hiding. The longer you hide your sin from the Lord, I mean, he knows it, you will not receive healing and have a blessed life because sin is dangerous. Sin destroys, it rots from the inside out. So the Sermon on the Mount is here to expose the rotting heart you have in sin. It says, I'm gonna give you a new heart, not one of stone, but one of flesh. So it's not try to mourn, to feel something, to force emotion. It's when things don't go right, you can mourn. And praise God for it. Verse 5. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. And this is an interesting beatitude, knowing the context of who's in the crowd. The humble, they'll inherit the earth. So I'm, I promise you the zealots in the crowd, the people who are religious fanatics, who are only going through, who are seeking oppression and violence, they would have looked at Jesus like he had three heads here. Would have lost their minds to the to those guys, the only way you get land is through force and violence. Because think about Joshua. And, and back in the Old Testament, he's saying, I have a land for you, but since you did not listen to me, you did not let me provide for you, you did not follow me, you did not give me your heart, you're going to get the land, but you're going to have to fight for it. Because there's occupied now. You have to take it back. And so these zealots did not understand this idea of being meek and humble and gentle. And here's what you need to know about the humble and what it means for us. The kingdom of God is ushered into the world through the trusting of his plan. So it's marked by as believers by trusting in his plan. Because it's easy for us to go like last week in Revelation, to go like the martyred saints in Revelation. How much longer, God, do you come back and avenge us? God, I need you to come back and defeat my enemies because this is hard. 
How much longer, God? It's easier for us to be like, God, I need you to work on my timetable. But the kingdom of God is ushered into the trusting of his plan. We cannot force the sovereign hand of God. He's promised to land everlasting life in the kingdom of God. We simply have to wait for him to be faithful to his promise. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Very difficult for us to fully understand the implications of this passage right here, this verse. Because I guess very few of us have, a, have had a hunger and thirsted for the fear of death. When I get thirsty, I swing by and get a caramel latte. I might go a few hours and be like, oh, I need some caffeine in me. To understand their culture, what hunger and thirst meant, food insecurity was a very real thing. Travel was difficult. Water was difficult to find. And it wasn't that you were trying to figure out where the next gas station was so you get a big gulp. You're literally trying to figure out, do I have enough food to make it to the next city? And so when Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what he's, the idea here is the idea of righteousness is the idea of relationship with God. That's the idea here. Jesus saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a relationship with me. And those that do that are the ones who will be filled, who will be satisfied, who will find their every need. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In this beatitude, if we want to experience mercy grace, then we need to be merciful. If we want to experience forgiveness, we need to be those who forgive. And forgiveness is a hard thing to work by, to work through. But it's a kingdom principle all throughout his gospels. Because to show and experience mercy reflects more of the fullness of God. To show and experience mercy reflects more of the fullness of God. Because all of us at one point have needed the mercy of the Father. All of us at one point have needed the mercy from someone else. And very quickly, we end up being like the prodigal son and, or, yeah, the prodigal son and his older brother. Someone has shown us grace as the prodigal son. And when we went off and we pursued sin, it rotted us from the inside out. We went and pursued other things, worldly possessions, money, pursued platform, kingdom, building of ourselves. And then we said, God, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Show me mercy. Show me grace. You died a death I did, did, you didn't, I did not deserve, but yet thank you. And then we slowly grow into the older brother. And then when someone wrongs us, we don't show the same grace and the same forgiveness that was once shown to us. And so us as kingdom people, to show and experience mercy reflects more of a fullness of God, and by doing so, we are a witness to the loving Father. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And you got to see here, physical cleanness was critical for these religious people. Later on in the book of Matthew, you're going to see that these religious guys jumped Jesus because his disciples didn't wash his hands. Okay, you need to wash your hands. Um, but Jesus calls them hypocrites. He says, no, 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 no. Hey, they're fine. They're clean. They're washed by the blood of Jesus. But you guys are whitewashed tombs. 
You're clean on the outside, but your hearts are rotted, dead flesh. Because the author of Hebrews talks about our ability to come to the throne of grace with confidence, having our hearts sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. And he's not just talking about a clean on the outside. He's talking about uh, being made clean on the inside by his grace. And here, here's a kingdom principle that I want you to see in verse 8 here. Good actions mean nothing without a clean heart. Because what you see later, a very scary, humbling, and very scary passage, as Jesus says, it says, there'll be many days on the day of judgment who say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Lord, Lord, did I not do all these things in your name? Lord, Lord, did I not disciple? Did I not teach Sunday school? Did I not fill in the blank? And the Lord says, go away, for I never knew you. Good actions mean nothing in the kingdom without a clean heart. So you can have all the knowledge in the world about the Bible, about church, a whole bunch of other things. If you're not giving your life over to Jesus, nothing's for you. Because a good heart, wait, good actions mean nothing without a clean heart. Verse 9, this is interesting. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. This is the only time this word is used in your New Testament. Peacemakers. And it has the idea to restore peace. But question, why, why do we need to restore peace? Why is Jesus coming, walking through these beatitudes say, hey, there's a kingdom principles that I want to teach you that you need to be. I'm flipping what you guys understand. The world is in chaos. It's not like it's, it's never been in chaos before. Back then when Jesus was talking about, they're under pagan Roman oppression. Christians are being killed almost. He's about to walk the, the way to Calvary where he gives his life. So he knows persecution's coming. And so as sons and daughters of the king, if you've given your life to him, we have a task given here. To be a son or daughter, we are to reflect what he brings to this world, and that is peace. We're supposed to reflect peace. And I will tell you this, probably one of the hardest things, the things we do a disservice is there's not peace among brothers and sisters in the church. Because we've let politics get in between us. We've let how COVID situation get in between us. So how can we be a message of peace to the world when we don't have peace among brothers and sisters in Christ? We can't. Because he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they'll be called sons in God, sons of God. And then he goes on to say this, because he knows he's flowing in his thought. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. So, feeding back into earlier, blessed are those who have a relationship with me and pursue and have a hunger and thirst for a relationship. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And you get this idea that Jesus is preparing the disciple for what's about to come. That there's a sense that to live in the kingdom of God is to be an outcast and be persecuted for it. To live in the kingdom of God is to be an outcast and be persecuted for it. And for those who want to live as sons and daughters of the king, you'll be persecuted for it. 
you'll be an outcast. But the faithful promise that we see in the church is that we can be outcast together. Because I hear all the time, especially about people that I grew up with, people that I see, um, I, I heard all the time, is I don't need the church. That's false. Because what happens when you're alone and you're, being, you're an outcast and you're persecuted by yourself? You'll fall away. If you don't have faithful brothers and sisters alongside of you, you'll be trampled. And then you'll blame the church for not helping you out when you're not plugged in. Jesus says, be part of my kingdom, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be an outcast. Verse 11, and this is what he says, because, because you are, you are blessed, you are happy when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the false pro- the prophets who were before you. And ultimately, these beatitudes are about the gospel of the kingdom of God. And as, they've in, as they ended, I have no doubt that there was a hush over the crowd. That when Jesus said, blessed are those who are merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the, uh, the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are humble. I'm sure as he's reading through this, there was a hush. That the thousands, hundreds, thousands, or ten thousands of people over the crowd were like, wait, what? That's not what I thought this guy was going to be. This guy has camped has gone around this whole countryside healing people. Blind people had their vision. Deaf people could hear. Lame could walk. Seizures are having seizures no more. He's doing this on saving people. But he's talking about a blessed life that are poor in spirit, those who mourn over sin, those who are gentle, meek, humble, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who forgive. But that's not, that's not what we expected nor what we wanted. They start looking at one another like, well, gosh, if this is the qualifications for the kingdom that he's offering, who can get the kingdom? Who can do that? And that's the point. It's not, wow, I'm the worst. It's not, I'll never get there. I can't believe I'm still struggling with this sin. It's not working through these things like, I can't believe I can't do eight things. The only way any of this works is we come with a humble heart to the Father. That's why we start off in pastoral prayer where we come before and we kneel before the Lord and we come with a humble heart. Like the tax collector knowing, Lord, I need you every hour of every day. We want to teach our hearts to sing his praises. We want to engage our minds to see his wonders. When my sin and temptation is too much, I can approach the throne of grace with confidence knowing that I have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. And so just to close... The Beatitudes here aren't commands. They're not morality. They're not formulas to be a blessed life. The Beatitudes are an announcement of God's lavish grace, of his supernatural grace he offers. 
And please notice, Jesus invites us to, as followers of his way, to live free from anger, not, to not murder that people around us, and that's a good thing, to keep, over our, to keep our word, to love our enemies. All that stuff's good, but hear me. Before Jesus commands us to do anything, he speaks blessing over us as people of God. Because the only way you're going to be able to accomplish what I'm asking you to do, that is to be kingdom people, is to know that you are blessed by a joy that comes from participation in the kingdom. Not announce, their announcement of Jesus' grace, and they're also a radical re-envisioning of God's people. Because remember who God is gathering around him, who Jesus gathers the people who are fallen, the people who are hanging on to his every word. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, giving your life to the gospel and accept that his penalty was paid for your sins, Jesus says, you're the kingdom. We're the kingdom of God here on earth. It's already started, but not to completion when he comes back for us. And Jesus is looking at these people around him, this ragtag group of believers who are gonna go on to start the church in Acts. You're my people. Now you will carry my blessing into the world. And he looks at us today and says, hey, you're my people. And you have to continue carrying this world, this message of hope into the world. And the last thing that really if you're looking at the Beatitudes, it's counterintuitive wisdom of the kingdom. The Beatitudes are not commands, but they're doorways to a new way of thinking. They're not cliches, they're paradoxes. A paradox is something that doesn't make sense until you live it. On the surface, you go, there's no way that can be true. And then you do it, and you're like, oh, wait, yeah, that is true. Because Jesus also says later, to, in order to find your life, you must first give it up. To die is to live. And so as we close this morning, I'm going to ask you all to stand up with us. And as the band makes their way up here, I want you guys to see the Sermon on the Mount is, is meant to expose the heart's and to point people back to their need for a savior. So this morning, I don't know where you're at with your walk with the Lord. I don't know if you've ever professed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I don't know if you've done that 50 years ago and never lived it out. I don't know if you've been faithfully following him every day since you've been saved. I don't know. But I, what I do know, if you're kingdom people, you are blessed by God simply because he loves you. Nothing that you earned, nothing that you did for it, but ultimately, I was talking to our Sunday school class today, thinking about what we are called to do. As kingdom people, we are called to invite others to come into the kingdom with us. And some of us have never shared the gospel with anybody before. And so if you're a believer, I encourage you this week to make it a challenge to share the gospel with one person. Someone who needs to hear the love and hope of Jesus. And, and let's just, it's not complicated. Think of the disciples when they're sharing about Jesus. I saw a guy who was blind but now can see. And I saw a Savior who died and he said he'd come back on his promise and he came back three days later. I think about my life that I was stuck in sin, I was lost, I manipulated people, I was a terrible human being, I, I pushed people when I shouldn't have pushed people, I, I used people for my good, and then no longer now that God puts me in a place where he saved me, he convicted me of my sin, he puts me in a place to where I can minister and shepherd to people. All I'm asking this week, if you say you're a kingdom person, 
to invite people to that kingdom. And we're going to be persecuted for it, and that's fine. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we thank you for your word. Allow us always to be faithful to it. Allow us to pursue a relationship with you. God, convict our hearts if there's anything that's in the way, if there's anything that is standing before us in our hearts before you, allow us to get rid of it. God, we have placed idols in our life. Let us abolish those to pursue the grace that you have. And Lord, we need you. We cannot accomplish this on our own. And God, this morning, I trust that your word does not come back void in the hearts of your people. We just ask that you move in power. We see revival in the hearts of our church, of our community. And that God ultimately will be a picture of the love of Jesus here on earth. You are in heaven. Your will be done here on earth. So God, go before us in response. We ask if the Lord is working, that people be open to the gospel. So Father, go before us now.